Good morning. Please be seated. If you're a first-time guest, uh, we welcome you here. We're so glad you're here with us. Uh, my name is Rich, and uh, Pastor John and Hannah are still on vacation. They're coming back today, so uh, it's been, hopefully it's been a great time for them. We look forward to connecting back up with them. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be able to fill in last week for him, but this week we've got Pastor Bill from uh, Grace Point Church in Williamsburg. He's been here before. Uh, Pastor, we thank you for coming, sharing the Word of God with us. Please welcome, pleasure. Bill. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So glad to be here. Our, uh, my wife and I came last night and uh, decided to deposit some dollars in the Virginia Beach economy for restaurant week. So about five of our friends from, uh, from Grace Point Church, the Pastorite Church in Williamsburg, came down and, and had a great meal with us last night. And so we stayed over last night so I didn't have to, like last time, get up early and wonder if the tunnel was going to be jammed up uh, like it was yesterday. I guess when there's a crash in the tunnel, it's really not good. So, But anyway, I am happy to be here, and let's just remember one thing. Uh, my wife is not here this service. She'll be here the second service. I didn't want to torture her with two sermons, but of the same thing. But remember, uh, things that are said, if I share stuff about my marriage, what what's happens in first service stays in first service. <laughs> May alter the message a little the second service. Just kidding. We, we're not going there. But anyway, it, but this July 10th, uh, my wife Tracy and I will have been married 30 years. So we're celebrating 30 years. And although we've been married almost 30 years, our marriage, like most, has had difficult times. Anybody married in here? It's not all roses and rainbows every day, is it? Um, one such time, I'll give you an example. Shortly after we escaped Michigan, the cold of Michigan for, for Virginia, about 23 years ago, and our daughter Mackenzie was a little over a year old, so we were just starting this young family out. And I got this job as an engineer at John Deere. And with this new job came success. And along with that success came a lot of pride. Big surprise. Man with, with job thinks he does real well and gets prideful. Now, as an aside, you can trace most issues in a marriage back to pride and or selfishness on one of or both parties. Now... In all sincerity, this party is usually the one that's causing the problems. I, I'm the high-maintenance one in the relationship. It's, it's crystal clear. You can ask Tracy when she, if you see her on the way in. But, so as I got this job, I became friends with a couple of the execs. We started playing a lot of golf, and I went, I went in on golf like I tend to do. I don't know if you guys, any of you guys have these obsessive personalities. When you go in on something, you're all in. Unfortunately, that transferred to my daughters, too, so my wife has to deal with three of us that get obsessed with stuff. But... I went all in, became a member, took lessons, all this stuff. Uh, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with golf. So wives, don't tell your husband, see, you shouldn't play golf or whatever. But, but an obsession was getting to the point where it was causing conflict in my marriage. Sadly, it even reached the point during an argument about it, I told Tracy, if you don't understand how important golf is to me, maybe we need to talk about this marriage. I mean, there's, there's problems. But, <laughs> yes. but by God's grace... He intervened in our lives. God brought me to the end of myself and saved me from my sins. I became a Christian in August of 2001 at the age of 31. So if you can do math, I'm old. A few months earlier, God had done the same thing in Tracy's life, saved her. And after following Jesus and surrendering myself to him, I began to see that I hadn't surrendered my marriage to him. Over time, I was able to see just how prideful and selfish I had become. In, in so many parts of my life, but when I put Jesus in my focus, I couldn't help 
but prioritize the mission. And part of that mission was surrendering my many desires to him so I could lead and love my family well, because I wasn't doing it. To love and serve my church family and to point my neighbors to him. Now, 22 years later, I certainly haven't arrived. Anybody arrived at their Christian destination? Perfection in your walk with Christ? But Jesus is certainly continuing to do a work in me. Pride and selfishness rise up, as they do in most of us. But I do ask myself this question. What would it like to be fully surrendered to Jesus? What does full surrender look like? Having his mission in my mind of seeking and saving the lost and making disciples that follow him. How would my life look different if that was the case? What areas of my life haven't, ask yourself these same questions, what areas of my life haven't I surrendered to him? What does it look like to be a fully surrendered servant of King Jesus? Have you asked yourself these questions or do you suppress them so he doesn't show you the answer? But if we want to find these answers, the best place to start would be with Jesus, don't you think? During his ministry, Jesus gave us more of an idea of what this looks like. Now, over the past few weeks, you've been in a series, Prayer for the Harvest, a vision for 2023, and you saw that Jesus had compassion on those who were harassed, helpless, and lost, seeing them as sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are, laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It begins with prayer, doesn't it? We must first pray that God would intervene in our own lives and in the lives of others who claim to follow him. Then we must pray that the Holy Spirit would come in power to intervene in the lives who have not yet called upon his name. I don't know about you, but my heart breaks for family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers who haven't called on the name of Jesus. Jesus himself will prepare the soil of the hearts of these men and women making that soil ripe for his harvest. Are you ready to be one of those laborers and to pray earnestly for God to send more like you? You know, we heard that though we labor in his work, we operate from a position of rest. Jesus said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. So if we spend time in the word and worship and prayer, Jesus gives us the necessary rest to enable us to do his work. Have you rested in Jesus, but at the same time leveraging all the parts of your life for his mission? Last week, Rich talked about this idea of operating from a position of rescue. Jesus came on this rescue mission, saving us from our sin and from God's wrath. And what does this lead us to? It should lead us to personal, personal worship uh, and, and personal, uh, sorry, personal worship, and corporate gospel proclamation. Because God's salvation flows to the people in our community through the witness of his people, the church, that is us. God's salvation flows out because of why? Our gratitude for all that he's done in rescuing us. We, we don't serve him, worship him because it's an obligation. We do it because he has done so very much for us. So today I'd like to continue by showing us that we need to operate from a position of surrender. 
What does it look like? I'll ask the question again to be a fully surrendered servant of Jesus. And I don't think there's a better place to look than the lives of Jesus' first disciples. So we'll be in John chapter 21, not 20. I also wrote down 20 at one point, and I was like, that would have been a whole different message. Um, But in verses 15 to 19, I've got two main points. Verses 15 to 19, we'll see Jesus' call to surrender, a call he's given. He gave his disciples, but a call he gives each of us. And in verses 20 to 25, we'll look at the conditions of surrender. So let's just real quick pray one more time before we get into God's word. Father, we pray that you would give us just a glimpse of the glory of Jesus today, of the risen Savior Christ. And Lord, I pray that for those who don't have ears to hear, that you would awaken them to the glorious truth of the gospel, give them ears to hear that message, save them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So looking at the call to surrender, before we go to our main text in John 21, I'd like to look at the initial calling of some of Jesus' first disciples in Matthew chapter 4 to lay the foundation. And so Matthew 4, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I don't know about you, but it really energizes me when I see the calling of these first disciples. These two brothers at first, these fishermen, they're just doing their jobs and are captivated by one statement, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's like, that would seem to be a cryptic statement to me. As like, What does that mean? What is this guy saying to me? I, I have no clue if they knew what they signed up, just signed up to do. But whatever the case, they dropped everything. They were compelled to do it and they went. Now it seems the next set of brothers followed Jesus on even less detailed instruction. The text simply says he called them. Like, hey, and they dropped their, they left their boats. They left their boat and their father and they followed him. So while these accounts energize me, they at the same time challenge me and even sometimes depress me. Because I look at these four men who left everything they knew, seemingly without a care in the world, to follow Jesus. You know, and later in, in Luke 14, 33, Jesus said to his disciples, any of you who does not renounce or forsake Everything that you have cannot be my disciple or all that you have. Now I wonder to myself when I hear, when I see these guys and I hear a verse like that, would I be willing to forsake or renounce everything for Jesus? Let's ask ourselves a better question. If we're honest, the better question might be, am I willing to forsake anything for Jesus in our me, me, me culture? Even in the Christian church, we see a lot of me-focused things. Now, he may not ask us to forsake everything to be his disciple, but he will ask us to forsake something. The key is that we have an open and willing heart to do whatever he calls us to do, to forsake whatever he calls us to forsake, and to have an awareness of when he calls. A lot of times we suppress those calls from Jesus. And sometimes, you know, we look, we read these stories of the disciples and we say, oh, they were the the super set-apart saints. These are not untouchable heroes. They're simply models of what it looks like to live a life surrendered to Jesus. 
So the minute we hold them up as something different than us is the minute we suppress God's call for us to do what he's called us to do. For three years, Jesus had given his disciples plenty of lessons about who he was, what his missions was, and what, what his mission was, and what the implications were in following him. Then he went to the cross at one point, he died, it seemed like, to take the wind out of the sails of these fishermen. They were, they were distraught, they were discouraged. And would, so would these fickle fishermen become faithful followers who would never look back? I don't know about you, but we, a lot of times we see people who come out of the gates zealous to follow Jesus. Making a profession of faith, but then something takes the wind out of their sails. The genuineness of their faith is tested, and many of them walk away from the Savior they claimed to follow. Have you seen that in people? So would that be the case with these disciples? In John chapter 21, Jesus will further engage two of these four men who left everything they had to follow him, Peter and John. He's going to focus squarely upon these two men. He's going to engage Peter directly, and he's going to engage John a little more indirectly, but both interactions have a deep and lasting impact. Spoiler alert, both men become fully surrendered servants of Jesus. Now, I had to read ahead in the New Testament to confirm that, of course, but it happens. So let's go, go back to our text. We're gonna, I'm going to read John 15, then make a, a little commentary on that. John 5, uh, 21, 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed, said to him, feed my lambs. So earlier in chapter 21, if you haven't read, read ahead before the text of today, Peter and John and the boys had gone back to fishing for fish uh, instead of fishing for men. While they were out fishing, this, the risen Jesus began speaking to them from the shore, if you remember the story. They're fishing, Jesus talking to them the shore. And after a short conversation, John realizes it's, it's Jesus. Now, when Peter realized it was Jesus, he leaped into the water. He had to throw his coat on first. Why? Don't know. Throws his coat on, leaps in the water, swims to the shore, while the other disciples anxiously row back to shore to be with Jesus. And there was Jesus waiting to have a meal with them. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of these disciples. I mean, you are disciples of Jesus if you've called upon his name. He's sitting there waiting to have a meal with them to further strengthen their faith in him. So, and I would say this, just as an aside, don't underestimate the power of a good meal to facilitate deep discipleship. That, that's one of the things Jesus, one of Jesus' primary venues for discipleship. You know, he was either, a lot of times, going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So when everyone throws, throws you under the boat, for, under the bus for having too many meals, hey, look, it's discipleship. But he did a lot of ministry at meals, and this is no exception. He, Jesus engages Peter, asking him, do you love me more than these? Now, many of you learned scholars in here know there are, there are about three words, three Greek words that can be translated into the English as love. Eros refers to sexual love. Phileo refers to more brotherly love, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The third Greek word for love is agape, which is the highest expression of love mentioned in the New Testament. It's a spiritual love rooted and grounded in the power of God. And Jesus uses this form of the word, asking Peter whether he has this highest form of love for him. Jesus asked Peter if he loves him more than these. What does Jesus mean by these? It's a bit ambiguous. Did he mean, do you love me more than these fish? Imagine Jesus holding up the fish, do you love me more than these? No, I don't think that's it. 
Did he mean, do you love me more than these disciples? Possible but doubtful. Jesus is more likely asking, giving Peter a very direct question. Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? This is a bomb question that Jesus drops on Peter. And remember, Peter had betrayed Jesus in a way that none of the other disciples had. Before he was crucified, Peter had forsaken his Lord and friend. He probably thought he had committed the unpardonable sin and there was no more future for him. I'm sure he still felt guilt and shame for those denials after Jesus predicted it would happen. Jesus said, you're going to deny me. And Peter said, never, even if I have to die for you. But he had denied them. Peter had fallen so far. But God says, for he who commits a greater sin, there is much forgiven. And the greater the sin is forgiven, the greater the gratitude of the sinner who was forgiven. I don't know about you, but when God saved me, I felt great gratitude. And over time, I think there's gratitude creep when we start forgetting what we've come from. You know, any sin that we're rescued from is a great sin. So we should be grateful for what he has done. So Peter had fallen far, and his response would be an incredible love and dedication. We see Peter's response in verse 15, saying, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So in response to Jesus' question about agape love, Peter responds with brotherly love, phileo love. Some commentators believe Jesus was challenging Peter to a higher love than he'd been able to demonstrate at this point. But other commentators say, you know what? He uses phileo and agape somewhat interchangeably in his writings. This might just be a stylistic preference than a profound theological point. But the bottom line is this. Peter doesn't argue with Jesus at this point like he did when, like he did when Jesus said he was going to deny him. He says, you know the answer, Jesus. Yes, I love you. And Jesus doesn't stop there. After he establishes that Peter does indeed love him, he says, feed my lambs. Jesus has an assignment for Peter. He has an assignment for every one of us. But he has an assignment for Peter to serve him as a shepherd. And the result of surrendering to Jesus is to serve him in whatever way he has called us without reservation. In Peter's case, loving Jesus meant feeding his people. Now, like most of us, though, Peter, Peter needed to have further emphasis of the point, emphasis of the point. So Jesus brings it home in verses 16 to 17. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. You can imagine if your spouse said, Do you love me? And he said, Yes. And they just kept going, going. Peter, Jesus just keeps going at Peter. He says, do you love me? And, and he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, some commentators, again, have made much about the difference between feeding and tending sheep in verses 15. Some have made a big deal about the fact that Jesus uses the word lambs in 15, the, the, the word sheep in 16 to 17. Just my own interpretation, I don't believe Jesus is threading such a fine needle here. I believe Jesus was just giving P Peter a clear charge to lead, teach, and shepherd his people. Jesus made it clear that if he loved him, that's exactly what Peter would do. Now notice G Jesus asked him to affirm his love for him three times. I, I don't think this is coincidence. P Peter had denied Jesus three times, and now he would affirm his love 
before him three times. Jesus was saying to Peter, feed my sheep. Don't let them starve. Teach them the truth about me. Show them how to follow me. Make my mission clear to my people. And, and I got sorry, I have a couple of sides here. Oh, how pastors in our day and age need to hear these words from Jesus. The messages that come from pulpits don't even have enough substance many times to feed the smallest creature on earth. And this, this quest to somehow be relevant, non-confrontational, seeker-friendly, many have taken the power out of the pulpit. And the apostle says, no one seeks after God. So until the Spirit of God transforms the unbeliever from death to life, God is the only seeker in such a relationship. It's only when we, when we trust Christ and we're filled with His Spirit that we become seekers of God's truth. And that's why the services in this church and the one I pastor are focused on praying, preaching, and singing the truth of God. Because it's the truth of the gospel that edifies the believer and pricks the heart of the unbeliever that they would be transformed again from spiritual death to life in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must be fed and strengthened in our time of corporate worship together. This is not the time to dilute our message. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, you're here to be fed and with the goal of leaving strengthened in the power of God and God's word to go and do what? Fulfill the mission of reaching lost people. Too many times we count on the so-called paid professionals to do the work of evangelism, you know, the, from the pulpit, it's like, oh, I'm going to invite my buddy Jimmy to church and pastor will preach an evangelistic message. And then he says, we're going to talk about money today. <laughs> but it's the body of believers around you here today that are to go and preach the gospel to friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, and strangers. Now, don't hear me wrong. Your pastor, John, and I have the very same responsibility as followers of Christ to evangelize friends, neighbors, co-workers, and strangers. But the pulpit's not the primary place for that evangelism to occur. Yes, the gospel will be preached and people will get saved, but primarily it's for the feeding of the saints. For each of us, it's the context of everyday life that we are to engage people in everyday relationships with the ultimate hope of having those gospel conversations and the opportunity to preach the gospel. But pastors are here, like Peter was, to feed and exhort you so that you can go. And go in the power of the Spirit with the Word of God because you don't belong to pastors, you belong to Jesus. And like Peter, we've simply been given the great privilege and responsibility to feed and shepherd the flock of God. We're here to preach the truth no matter what the consequences. We may be preaching hate speech at some point, but we must be faithful in doing it. And Peter certainly preached the gospel without regard for consequences that he would face. Jesus gives him a look in the future at what it would cost him in verses 18 to 19. Verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Jesus' words here were prophetic at how Peter's life would end. In a little over 30 years, Peter would meet his death at the hand of Nero in Rome. Tradition says he was crucified upside down. 
Imagine how heavy this would be for Peter. Jesus just finished telling you what you're to do, all this great thing, follow me. And he follows up by telling you how you're going to die. Aren't you glad you don't know the future? Especially how you're going to die. Many of us think we'd like to know the future so we could plan better. You know, us planners, engineers like me, like, oh yeah, just give me the future, God, and I'll plan everything around it. But I'm not sure any of us really want to know that. Does anyone want to know how they're going to die or when they're going to die? At least Jesus didn't tell him when he was going to die. After Jesus dishes this uh, nice little juicy piece of news out, he says to Peter, again, follow me. I think I'd need Jesus to, to, to end with that too to get me back on track after hearing the previous news he just shared about my death. But even with this hanging over his head, Peter listens, follows, surrenders, and serves Jesus with every bit of who he was. Peter did just as Jesus commanded. But before we get too excited about Peter's faithfulness, like many of us, Peter seemed to want to apply conditions to the surrender. He was curious. Felt like he needed to know a little more about the future of his ministry buddy, Johnny, before, all, before he went all in. Was Peter going to put conditions on how he would follow Jesus based on Jesus' plan for John? Let's take a look. Let's look at the conditions of our surrender in verses 20 to 25. I'm going to read verses 20 to 23 for now. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during supper and, and said, had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among, abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So Peter gets his marching orders and a prophecy about his death from Jesus. Then he sees John, who's apparently close, and says, what about him? You told me what's going to happen to me, but what about John? Tell me about his ministry and how he's going to die. Maybe even tell me when he's going to die. Jesus gives a rebuke and essentially says, Peter, you worry about you, brother. If it's my will that John remains, if, he, if he's hanging out with me until the end, that's my business. You follow me and do as I commanded. And Jesus' statement in verses 20, verse 22 was misinterpreted by some that John wasn't even going to die. But we know he eventually did die. Jesus never said he wouldn't die. He just said, it's none of your business, Peter. History tells us that John was, was only one of the only apostles, the only apostle who was not martyred for his faith. But certainly John lived a life of persecution. If you read anything about John, he not a life of prosperity. John did not believe in the prosperity gospel, and I hope none of you do. I hope we've all suffered enough to not believe that gospel, which is false. Tradition says they tried to boil John in oil. I don't want that for my sort of method of destruction. But he, but he survived. And he was exiled to an island called Patmos for much of his life. Peter looked at this fellow apostle. He wanted to compare notes. What about him? Now, many of us can identify with Peter because he's such a picture of us in so many ways, and this situation is no exception. We look at the life of another Christian, and we wonder why God has given us a lot in life that is different. Maybe we see one of our brothers or sisters prospering in a way that we're not, and we become envious. 
On the other hand, we experience suffering. I know many of you, if not all of you, have experienced suffering of some kind. It may not even be the result of our own personal sin, while another Christian doesn't suffer like we did. And we wonder why. But the reality for us is the same as it was for Peter and John. God has given us each a unique life, a unique call to ministry, and a unique degree of suffering. We aren't to compare our situation to another follower of Christ. You and I live the life he's given us and trust him during the difficult times with no conditions applied to him. That doesn't mean we don't have times where our faith wavers, but we can't, don't put conditions on following Jesus. If Jesus was here with us today, and by the way, he is, he would say, and is in fact saying to us, follow, surrender, serve. I want all of you, and not only, uh, not only that when you, want, want, when you want to, when the going is good. Jesus wants all of us when the going is good, bad, or indifferent. He wants all of us all of the time. And John closes his writing in verses 24 to 25 saying to himself, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself cannot contain the books that could be written. John was a witness to that which Jesus did, and he wrote much of it down for our benefit, but he didn't write it all down. John had just given us a glimpse into the life of Jesus. John's closing statement that the world couldn't contain the books that would be written about Jesus, that's more emphatic than it is literal. It emphasizes the magnitude of what Jesus accomplished for mankind through his incarnation, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. These two men and the other nine faithful disciples certainly didn't follow Jesus perfectly, but they did follow him faithfully, living surrendered lives. For three years, they sat under his teaching and learned from him what it meant to be a disciple. And when Jesus was crucified and buried, their hopes sort of got shattered if you follow their story. They, they were confused. But you know what? Jesus was gracious enough to, to minister to them in the flesh after he rose from the dead. And before he ascended into heaven, he exhorted and encouraged them in the mission in Matthew 28. So we're going to go to Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command, have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So these eleven men go to this mountain where a dead man, or at least they, one they had thought was dead, told them to go and they worshipped him. Now notice some of them had doubts. That should make us feel pretty good, right? Because our faith doesn't need to be a perfect faith. Just a faith where we cling to Jesus. We are going to have doubts. Jesus was about to ascend to heaven, but he has their attention for this one final message, and it's a powerful message with a strong command and some very strong encouragement. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. There's no greater authority than God. So that's an authority that I want to follow. I don't know about you, but I want to follow God's authority. 
He gives them the command to go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teaching them to obey his commands. And he closes by promising what? That he will be with them till the end of the age. While they're doing all these things, Jesus himself will be with them. While you're doing all these things in the name of Christ, he will be with you. He is with you. He would never leave them nor forsake them as they plowed forward in the mission, and he will, it's the same for you. Notice one important thing. These men were themselves disciples before they were commanded to make disciples. You and I can't be effective in making disciples unless we're sitting at the feet of Jesus on a regular basis. These men hung on Jesus' every word while they were with him. Sure, they were messed up and they messed up, but so do we. But they would go back to the well of God's grace when they failed. There's no better example of that than Peter. When he, we, we know Peter failed Jesus in huge ways, but he's restored and reinstated numerous times. When we fall and fail, Jesus will restore us. Though these men rested in their salvation, they lived surrendered lives, not ceasing from doing Jesus' work and will throughout their lives. They, they wouldn't stop until the name of Jesus was proclaimed and known throughout the world. Jesus ascended into heaven, and then something miraculous happened in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. And from that point forward, these disciples preached the gospel of grace to every man, woman, and child they encountered. Thousands were saved and baptized as the word was preached. Churches were planted. Disciples were made. This gets me really fired up to be part of the mission. How about you? Does this get your blood flowing? You know, if we read through the book of Acts, we get a glimpse into the ministry of Peter. We see that he preaches an incredible sermon in Acts chapter 2. And after as he finishes this sermon, something amazing happens. It says in verse 37, now when they, sorry, I'm getting a little fired up. I'll slow down a little bit. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The result is that thousands receive his word and are baptized. 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. That day. Peter evangelized, taught, and shepherded in the name of Jesus throughout much of the book of Acts. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the books of 1 and 2 Peter to those facing persecution in their faith. He did this all knowing one day he would die for his faith. It's one thing to die, but he die, would die in the name of Jesus. And Peter became the shepherd and pastor that Jesus called him to be. Jesus said, follow me. Peter followed him and fully surrendered to him. What about John? John has taught us much about the person and work of Jesus in this gospel account. John planted and shepherded multiple churches, trained pastors, wrote the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation that gives us a look into end times. And he did much of that while in exile. John followed Jesus and fully surrendered to him. So, so what do we do with today's study of these fully, sur fully surrendered servants, if we simply look at these two men as super saints that Jesus called in a special way, we've completely missed the point, friends. God is speaking to each of us through this study, but are we listening? I want each of us to challenge ourselves with, with what we've learned today. Here are a few takeaways before we close that I want us to take to heart today. First, we follow. Discipleship begins when we follow Jesus. 
John gave us the purpose statement of his gospel account in chapter 20, verse 31, that says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is one of the most evangelistic books in the Bible, pointing over and over to the deity of Christ. Now, if you haven't become a follower of Jesus today, there's no better day than today to start your journey with your Lord. Maybe you hear Christians telling you that you need to be saved. And you think, saved from what? I live a pretty good life. I haven't killed anyone. I pay my taxes most of the time. I'm a pretty good person. Let me ask you a couple questions, though, if that's you. When the standard is a perfect and holy God, what's good enough? Have you lived a perfect life free from any wrongdoing? Now, if you're honest with yourself, you'll agree it's impossible to live a perfect life. Because here's the problem. When we sin, we commit cosmic treason against a holy God, and that comes with a penalty of death and eternal punishment. So now you see the problem. Here's the beauty. Along with the problem, God has provided a solution. Because, because of Jesus, you don't need to live that perfect life if you trust him. He lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He died the death we deserve, paying the penalty for our sin. And for those who trust Jesus and follow him, God no longer sees the sin and unrighteousness that separated us from him. When he looks upon the redeemed sinner, he sees the righteous robes of Christ. Second, we surrender. Now, if you're a Christian, it means you've surrendered your life to Jesus. Maybe you would say that you're a Christian, but you haven't fully surrendered to him. It's only when we fully surrender to Jesus that we're able to fulfill God's purpose and the purpose of our lives. Now, just to be clear, I can't tell you I've fully surrendered every part of my life to Jesus. So I'm not suggesting this this ever happens. Sanctification is is a thing. It's a thing, it's a lifelong thing as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus and grow closer to him, conform to his image. But it's only when we surrender fully to him that we're able to fulfill that purpose. Pastor David Platt says this, this is what it means to be a Christian, to live with radical abandonment for the glory of Jesus, to see the mission of Christ as the purpose of our lives. To live with radical abandonment for the glory of Jesus, to see the mission of Christ as the purpose of our lives. Can you say today that you are living with radical abandonment for the glory of Jesus? If we look at the lives of Peter and John, I would say they are pretty good examples of living with radical abandonment for the glory of Christ. Imperfect disciples, but living for Jesus. They had they put Jesus in his rightful place on the throne as Lord. By the way, he's on the throne whether you put him there or not. Sometimes we attempt to live the Christian life as, as if Jesus can be our Savior, but he's not our Lord. It's just not biblical. We can't add a cup of Jesus to the recipe that is our life and expect to fulfill his mission. Remember, Jesus said that anyone who is not willing to give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. So we have to ask ourselves, are we willing? He may not ask us to give up everything, but are we willing? Are we able, are we, will we take up our cross and die for him? That is, die to the idols and our other priorities in our life that keep us from fully surrendering. And as we grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus, the fact that we've surrendered our hopes and dreams for his mission should become more and more apparent to us and to those around us. I had to surrender much of what I was chasing in order to follow him. 
And guess what? There's still much to surrender even now. So I'll ask you a question. If you haven't listened to anything else, listen to this question. What is it in your life that's keeping you from further surrendering to Jesus? Now be, on, be, be honest with yourself because you lie to yourself a lot. God probably just brought something to your mind when I asked that question of something you need to surrender. Now if you're like me, you try to suppress it, dismiss it, and think of something else because you don't want to surrender that part of your life to him. So I will tell you this. Take some time later today, this week, right now, to ask yourself, or sorry, to ask God, don't ask yourself, because you never get the right answer, to ask God what you need to surrender to him. So we follow, we surrender, we serve. When, G when, when we've surrendered to Jesus, it drives us to serve him. Gratitude for what he, do what he has done drives us to serve him. You don't need to look far to see what it looks to be a servant. Jesus is our Savior, but he also serves as a model for what a servant does. Jesus surrendered to the will of God the Father to fulfill his mission. Again, I'm going to pick on pastors again. I don't know why some pastors expect to be served when that is clearly not what Jesus modeled. The calling of a pastor is to be the chief servant, and the calling of a Christian is also to be a servant. But, but look, even if you're not in vocational ministry, the everyday life of every Christian is full-time ministry. I don't believe in the term secular jobs. If, God, if you're doing what God's called you to do in your vocation, you're in ministry. Recall what David Platt says, the second part of his quote. This is what it means to be a Christian, to see the mission of Jesus as the purpose of our lives. Peter and John clearly made the mission of Jesus the purpose of their lives. Have you made the mission of Jesus the purpose of your life? You can quickly assess your answer to that question by examining whether you've surrendered your time, talent, and treasure. So just briefly as we close, are you surrender, surrendering your time to God's mission? You and I have a finite amount of time on this earth. And many times we live like the end of our lives on earth is the end. Soak up as much of what this world has to offer before we have to leave it. But for us, it's just the beginning. No time invested in kingdom work is wasted time, friends. When we spend our time in investing in reaching unbelieving friends, neighbors, co-workers, and strangers with a hope of presenting the saving message of the gospel, does anybody think that's wasted time? When we invest our time in discipleship of, a, discipleship of believers, it is by no means wasted time. Next question, are you surrendering your talent for God's mission? Each and every one of us has abilities, talents, and spiritual gifting that is beneficial in accomplishing the mission. And God wants each of us to leverage those gifts that he's given to serve both the church and the community. Now, I am certain there are many in this church family who have recognized the gifts God's given them and put them to work for his glory. But I will tell you this, I'm sure some of those serving are exhausted because they haven't, others haven't taken the opportunity to serve. Maybe you haven't taken that first step to serve with the gifts God's given you in this body. And I would tell you, if you need someone to help you discern the gifts you have and how you could use them, I'm sure there are leaders in this church and ministry leaders who would be happy to help you discern that. And finally, are you surrendering your treasure for God's mission? One way we serve God is by giving our resources toward the mission. Remember this, everything we have is a gift from God. So why not use it for his glory? If you've been given a vocation that you enjoy that allows you to prosper greatly, do it to the glory of God. 
and give back a portion as an act of worship and servitude. Maybe even given a vocation that's not so prosperous. Do it to the glory of God and give back a portion as an act of worship and servitude. God may have given you a beautiful house or property. Maybe, maybe you would say your house isn't so beautiful. Either way, you have a home, and it's a resource to be used for God's glory. Leverage those resources for meals and meetings with unbelievers and discipleship of believers. It's a means of serving the mission with the resources God has given you. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And we are, when we're fully surrendered servants, living in radical abandonment for the glory of God, we will see the mission of Christ as the purpose of our lives, friends. Peter and John were fully surrendered servants that lived in this way. Let it be our prayer today that we too would be fully surrendered servants sent into the harvest by Jesus himself. Let's pray.